0: Let me say something before I begin uh, the sermon today. I uh, seldom have the privilege of playing the the keyboard, uh, but I did this morning, uh, the prelude uh, music before the service. But it gave me this opportunity that I never have, and that is to sit up here as I play and watch people. Since I play by ear, I don't know any music, so I watch people come in uh, this morning, and uh, I, I just had to say this, I love you guys, and let me s- tell you why I'm saying this. is because I look around the room, and pardon me, I, I don't think this will be offensive but uh, to you, but I look around the room, and in this service are the most messed up people in the world. <laughs> like, you, you are. I mean, I just love the fact that you're coming in here, because I know so much of your stories, and you're coming in here. And I, this, like, this is the service that you ought to look across the way and go, he goes to church? This ought to be that service. And it is so cool. I'm so glad you're here. I am glad that you are fighting against the sin that wrestles you to the ground. I am glad that you are willingly saying, whatever it takes, going to walk with God, going to say no to the sin. And yes to Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to be here this morning? Amen. It's good to be here. So glad you're here. Just had to say that. Love you so much. Love being your pastor. Love seeing you walk in this place on a nasty, rainy Sunday morning. We are going to go to Philippians chapter 2. And this is the fourth of the hymns in the New Testament that we're looking at. Uh, It strikes me every time I think about a hymn being written for the New Testament that so early in the life of the church, they were writing poems, hymns about Jesus Christ. So convinced they were of who he was, though he did not then hold the clout, you might say, that he does now, He did not hold the uh, popularity that he does now, and Christmas certainly wasn't celebrated. So for them to write what they wrote when they wrote it is significant. We cannot ignore that. And for Paul to write what he writes here is incredibly significant. You see, Jesus' birth was not the newsmaker of his day. When Jesus was born, as Amy and Anna have uh, sung, it was a cold night. It was not the ideal situation for a birth to take place. Mary had to lie on the ground to give birth to him. This was not her ideal situation uh, to bring a, a child into the world. The news was not... Jesus being born, it brought to mind November 7th, 1918. November 7th, 1918. As a matter of fact, we have a couple of uh, uh, newspaper articles from then. The news of the day was that the war was over. It was in every newspaper across the United States, small town, big town. Uh, The first world war was over, according to the news. And so that's what was there. Uh, Germany surrenders, one of the headlines said. But the problem is that it was an erroneous news report. It was premature. The war, in fact, had not ended. It would... And four days later, when the armistice was signed, and on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, now celebrated as Veterans Day, uh, the war ended. That was the news on November 7th, 1918. No one on November 7th knew about a little boy born to pretty poor parents in North Carolina, somewhere around the Charlotte area, but I guarantee you that when Billy Graham dies, it will be news all over the world. Montreat has already developed plans on how to handle not only United States leaders, but world leaders when Billy Graham dies. That day, November 7th, 1918, he was born. Nobody knew. No one cared. If you were to travel to Israel, as I did a year ago, you would realize that Nazareth is stuck out of nowhere. That where Jesus was born was, uh, grew up was most unlikely. That Bethlehem is off the beaten path and now behind the wall from Jerusalem. uh, Bethlehem, Micah called that, shouldn't be the place. That would be expected for Jesus to be born. Yet he grew up in Nazareth, was born in the most unlikely Bethlehem. He wasn't the newsmaker. The news would have been the census. If CNN or Fox were around, they would have reported on the census and all the people traveling and the full hotels. Uh, The news would not have been in any shape, form, or fashion that there's a baby boy. Screaming uh into the world in a cave beside a f behind a full uh, inn in Bethlehem, but that is what happened. He lived a very short life many of you have outlived him already. He lived a very short life uh he didn't make much news in his life, but Paul, uh, shortly after his life, has some things to say about him. And the Christmas carol, uh, after, who, uh, after which this whole series is named, What Child Is This? Uh, Paul tries to answer that question here. And in so doing, Paul talks about Jesus' form and fashion. He talks about Jesus' emptied self, Jesus' humbled self, and finally Jesus' new name. Let's look at Jesus' form and fashion. In the Greek, uh, there are two words that occur here, but they're translated uh, three times in the passage. So uh, one of the words occurs twice, and the other word occurs once. And every single time, they're translated form. But in the Greek, they have Two different meanings. One is form, Uh, morphe. uh, The word form is morphe in the Greek or it's schema in the Greek. Now why does this matter? If the word is morphe, we get our word morph from that. If the word is morphe, it refers to an unalterable state, a changeless state. So Paul says that Jesus came in the form of God. Morphe. What Paul is saying then, this is a declarative statement that Jesus was, prior to his birth, the incarnation, God and he remains God. This is a significant statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. I I say to you, if uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons were to look specifically and with clarity at The Greek, they could not make an argument here. The word means a permanent state. Jesus was God when he came screaming through the birth canal of Mary. And when he was born, he continued to be God. But what happens, and Paul carefully and brilliantly chooses his words, what happens is rather remarkable. Because if you read the passage, have this mind, we'll deal with that word at the end, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the morphe, the form of God, did not account, account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Better translation, emptied himself, taking the morphe of a servant. Why doesn't Paul use the other word here? Paul then says that he was in the changeless form of God and when Jesus hit planet earth, he took on the changeless form, uh, the unalterable form of a servant. You see, when God became flesh, When Jesus became man, it wasn't like trying on a new outfit in the fitting room, in the mall, to determine if you like it. Does it fit you well? Does it look good on you before you pay the price for it? When Jesus chose to robe Himself in human flesh, it was a permanent, irreversible decision to become a servant. God Jesus' unalterably changeless God became Jesus' unalterably changeless servant. He himself said, I did not come to be served, but to what class? To serve. And to give myself as a ransom for many. This wasn't a trial run. This was not temporary. This was permanent, real deal. Jesus became a servant. God became a servant. It's as if you walk into the restaurant and sit down at the table of your life. And when you sit down at the table of your life, you look around the table and sitting with you are key people who can testify to all the sins you've committed, many of them against them. Your parents can testify of the pain that you brought them as a teenager or a young adult. Uh, You look across the table and there are relationships of people with whom you have been abusive or neglectful and they all can speak up and bear witness to the reality of sin in your life when uh, here comes the waiter, the server. He walks up to your table. He is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He looks at you, hands you the menu and when you open it up he agrees for all of the grievances of all of those people at the table. He agrees to exchange for the pittance of of money that you can give of any good works that you've done the finest thing on the menu. Filet mignon if that's your wish. The freshest salad you could ever eat. He did not come to sit at the table to be served. Why? There's no one to accuse Him. There are no sins that need to be ransomed. He came to serve. How? To give His life a ransom for many. Jesus, form, God. God. Form, servant, but then the word schema shows up. Some of your translations render that likeness. He came in the likeness of man. You see, in Greek, there's form and there's fashion. How does it work? I'm a man, but I, and I've always been a human male. That's my form. But when I was born, I was... A baby. And then I became a toddler. And then I became a teenager. And then I became an adult. And that is fashion. That's the difference in the words. Jesus was always God. And then he became the always servant even now. But the phrase says being found at a point in time in the schema, the likeness of man. He became one of us. Paul talks about Jesus' form and fashion. What child is this? Let me tell you about His form and His fashion. Number two, Paul talks about Jesus' emptied self. That word emptied is huge because scholars have debated it forever. What in the world does it mean that Jesus emptied Himself? If you fall more on the liberal side of scholarship and in my opinion, the the very wrong side of it, you say He ceased to be God no because if jesus ceased to be god then the uh, potential of his sin is intensified and if jesus had sin his death on the cross is insufficient for ours so what does it mean that he emptied himself let me look at uh, four ways that jesus emptied himself he he emptied himself of his innocence uh, check out this verse. He emptied himself of his innocence. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned a moment in his life, but God made him to be sin. When did that happen? Scholars disagree. I happen to think that when Jesus cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Second Corinthians 5, 28, uh, 21 happened. He took your sin and my sin on Himself. He, he emptied Himself of His innocence. Oh, if every one of us in the room were to take a note and write down our worst sin we've ever committed, Multiply that by the billions of people who've ever lived. That is what lay on Jesus' shoulders. He emptied Himself of His innocence when He died on the cross. Secondly, He emptied Himself of His riches. Same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was what? Say it loud. Though he was what? Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become what? Rich. Rich. Both verses, 521 and 89 have one phrase in common. For your sake. Jesus gladly traded his wealth and his riches for your poverty. Have you ever thought that Jesus, during his earthly life, borrowed almost everything? The stable, the cave in which he was born was borrowed. He he borrowed a house to sleep in. Jesus borrowed a boat to preach from. He borrowed a donkey to ride into town on. He borrowed the very room in which he would institute the Lord's Supper. He borrowed the tomb in which he would be laid. For your sake, he, though he was rich, became poor. He emptied himself of his riches. He Thirdly, emptied himself of his glory. John 17, verse 5, Jesus is praying. Notice what he prays. And now, Father, this is right before he is to be tried and ultimately crucified. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, Jesus shared such phenomenal glory with the Father. And he says, now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What did that glory look like? Isaiah could tell you. Chapter 6, Isaiah meets a crisis in his life. And as crises do in our lives, they often bring us to God, don't they? And they did, and Isaiah Isaiah found himself in the temple, and he was in the temple, and there in the temple he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the hem of the garment of God filled the temple. And smoke was billowing in the temple, as God's glory was there. There were seraphim, six-winged creatures. Two wings, they cover their eyes. Two wings, they cover their feet. With two wings, they fly. And they pronounce, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who did Isaiah see? The glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began. Jesus, through a trade, that glory, seraphim would cover their eyes and their feet and spikes would go through his and they would literally pull the beard from his face. Prior to that, he prays, God, Dad, Father, the glory I had with you Before the world existed, by the most unusual circumstances, meaning death on a cross for your sake and mine, by the most unusual circumstances, would you return it? He he emptied himself of his glory. Jesus also. Emptied himself of privilege. Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He emptied himself. I've shared this before, but it's the the best way I know to attempt to illustrate what this word means. Uh, many of you know that my roommate in, in college, his name was Steve Austin, and that's kind of funny, because my name is Jerry Lewis, that we shared a room, but we did, my sophomore and my junior year in college. I mean, I must add, although it adds nothing to the illustration, that my roommate's name my first semester in college tops them all. His name was Ashish Gajanan Shambog, so at any rate... And my last roommate's name was Eduardo Adias. So I don't know what happened, but I had those roommates. And in between was Steve Austin. Steve came from a super wealthy family in Greensboro, North Carolina. His father began Integon Insurance Company and built that company. But Steve's junior year, his dad contracted hepatitis. He was overweight. He was also a drinker. And he contracted hepatitis in his own restaurant in Greensboro and died. Steve's mom had never worked in the company, but now she was the CEO. She owned the company, privately owned. She owned the company, and she had to figure something out. He shared with me kind of along uh, the road what she would do. Since she had never worked in the company, though she was CEO, reminds me of Undercover Boss, if you've ever seen it. Although she wasn't undercover, she started in the mailroom and worked her way up all through that company, all the way to the very top. You might say that while she was working in the mailroom as the CEO, she wasn't working as the CEO. Though she was the CEO, she was a mail clerk. She, for that period of time, however long it lasted, emptied herself Of the privileges of being the CEO. Jesus, for 33 years, emptied himself of significant divine privileges to be here among us. Paul talks about Jesus' uh, form and fashion, Jesus' emptied, emptied self. He talks also about Jesus' humbled self. He humbled himself. Uh, he humbled himself. It, it is, means to make oneself low. Let me share this with you. Humility, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Uh, it's important that we get that. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Humility is not self deprecation. People who talk about how bad they are all the time, and I, I'm poor me, I can't do this, I can't do that, guess what? They're still talking about themselves. They're still thinking about themselves. That has nothing to do with humility. They're still stuck on themselves. Nobody wants to hear that, all right? No one. Humility is to think of yourself less often. It means you think of others more than you think of yourself. Jesus humbled himself. Were you born through natural birth? So was he. Did you go through puberty? So did He. Did you learn a trade or a skill? So did Jesus. Did you ever get hungry? So did He. Uh, were you, have you ever been just super thirsty? So was He. Has anything ever brought you to tears so that you wept, maybe publicly or privately? So did He. Have you ever gone to a wedding and just rejoice and and be excited for the family? So did he. Are you destined to die? The answer to that is yes. So was he. But Paul goes on to say that his death is unlike any other. Because he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why is that significant? Paul was a Roman citizen. Uh, Listen to what Cicero said about the cross. Let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Paul is in prison when he's writing Philippians. But even though Paul sits in prison as he is writing this letter, he knows as a Roman citizen he will not endure the death that his own Master and Savior and Lord endured. Even death on a cross. Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Jesus endured death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled self. But that leads in in some of the strangest ways to Jesus' new name. Jesus' new name. Verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Uh, we might translate that super exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, Paul leaves us hanging. He, then he puts a, a parenthetical uh, expression in there. He doesn't tell us the name yet. He says God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All right? We don't yet hear the name. If I'm uh, the Philippians and I'm reading this, I'm hanging on to the word. What is this name, this new name that Jesus had that he didn't have before? But before I get there, I'll discover this. Everybody's going to bow. All right? Those above the earth. Angels. Seraphim, cherubim, they're going to bow. Those on the earth, human beings, those under the earth, Satan, demons, and the damned who have gone to hell. Everybody's going to bow. That's what I see. When might that happen? When Jesus Christ returns and reigns in power and majesty? And he sets up his kingdom on this earth, and everybody will bow. Everybody. You see, we're all destined to die, and we're all created to worship. You will either worship now voluntarily and with joy in your hearts, or one day, according to uh, God's word, you will worship. Though not voluntarily, with the demons and with the angels, you will worship. What is the name? Here it is. Verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Say it loud, church. One more time. He's Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You cannot miss that Paul wrote this when Rome was at its height. And that title, Lord, was reserved For emperors. No Roman emperor is Lord, Paul is saying. Jesus is. Peter would step forward in the book of Acts. Early on he's preaching and he looks at the Jews and he says, This man whom you crucified, God has made him what? Lord. God has made him Lord. Paul would say in Romans that if you uh, confess with your mouth, Jesus is what, church? Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This is where the rub comes. Why? I want to be my own boss. I want to call the shots. I want to be my own emperor of my own throne in my own life and do my own thing. No, 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 no. I don't want anybody else saying, hey, I'm Lord. I'm calling the shots. This is where you're going to go, what you're going to do, what you won't do, what you will do. That's what this means. He's Lord. Notice, Jesus Christ, Lord. Jesus would have been his common name. Many people named Jesus in his day. Nothing super unusual about that. Christ, Old Testament, Messiah. Lord, New Testament, King in charge. John would say in, in John 17 and again in John 20, uh, 21. King of kings and Lord of what? Lords. That's his, that's his new name. So what should we do? Oh, it's one thing to go to the lofty heights of this hymn and and try to plumb its amazing depths. But Paul begins the entire thing with this word. Let this mind be in you. Attitude. The word occurs 19 times in the New Testament, seven of which occur in the book of Philippians. So evidently, Philippians has a lot to say about attitude or mindset. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus here, Jesus Christ in all of his infamy and glory is lifted up as an example to us. As a matter of fact, Ryan Bradley, who's uh, my neighbor, came up last night. Phenomenal grasp of Greek. So he brought me, he had no clue I was going to use this today, his own translation of this passage. He says, here's how Ryan translates it. It is imperative that you have the same mindset in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. It's imperative. Well, what does that look like? I think the word yourselves is key. This attitude ought to be so obvious that everybody around you sees it. What does it look like? It looks like serving. Well, where should we start? How about husbands? Husbands. Husbands. Those of you who are sitting here, you're married. Are you serving your wife? Do you serve her? You'll say, well, Jerry, what would that look like? Rubbing her feet? Maybe. And some wives are going, yes. Maybe when you've come home from work and your word quota Is at its top, but hers is just getting started. And she has stories from the day of taking care of your children or stories from her work. And she just wants to sit and talk with you. You sit and listen. Do you serve your wife? Is she your number one priority outside of Christ? Parents, children. If you don't plan to sacrifice, don't become a parent. Because parenting equals sacrifice. Amen? Parents say amen. And sometimes it's on a grand scale, and sometimes it's on a small one. Trent's birthday was this past week, and I bought him a ping pong table. And honestly, I'll be honest, I don't know if I bought it for him or me, and I'm honest about that, all right, because it's the only thing I can play, that and a piano, ping pong and piano, that's it. So I buy a ping pong table, get it off Craigslist, super cheap, great deal, put it in the carport, and... 30 degrees. It's 30 degrees this past week. I know it's 70 today, but it's 30 this past week. It's nighttime. Trent and I are outside. My hands are freezing, and we're playing ping pong. And so we're playing ping pong. My hands are freezing. And guess what? Trent is good at football, and Trent's okay at basketball, but Trent's horrible at ping pong. He's just horrible. he's never played it. He's just no good at ping pong. So what do I do? I get out there, and I give him my serve, and I crush him, right? No. No, I don't want him to hate ping pong right off. So I go, I start slow, and my hands are freezing, and I'm out there. What am I doing? I'm just serving my 11-year-old more than a ping pong ball. I'm serving him. And sometimes the greatest service I give him is to look at him and, and say no. Or like tomorrow night when he has a game, but it's also my and Wendy's anniversary. If when I ask her to marry me, and we've got this date plan, I just look at Trent and say, "Listen, you'll have lots of games. But tomorrow night, I'm taking your mom out. So your grandmother will take you to your game, and you guys will have a blast. And I'm taking your mom out, and we're going to go celebrate the biggest, craziest decision she's ever made in her life, saying yes to me. Do you serve?" I struggle with this. I'll just say to you, oftentimes I leave this office and my mind is so tired. I just want to go home, get off to myself. But I don't have a choice. There are several bosses in the room. You have people who work for you. Do you serve your employees? So, Jerry, what do you mean? Do you work the worst days that nobody wants to work so they can be off? Do you take the most difficult projects and demonstrate by that your willingness to take one for the team? This is how this is evidenced. You see, there's this principle. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says this. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. The most humble thing you can do is to say, God, here's all my junk, all my life, all of me. And some of you sit here this morning, and for whatever reason, you're stubbornly holding on to your addiction, you're stubbornly holding on to your your sin, you're stubbornly holding on to your, uh, your habit, and God is saying, humble yourself under my mighty hand, and at the right time, I'll turn that over and lift you up. And there's a whole bunch of people in the room that's on the upper side of the hand. Amen? Feels good to be there, doesn't it? Don't you bow your heads? Our team is coming. We're going to close with this great hymn. I want to ask you to do something today. This hymn, this great Christmas song is, is, is part of our worship. So, so don't slip out. This is just as much part of worship as any other part of this service. We're going to sing both verses. And I think you're going to sing verse 2 in a way that you've never sung it before. He is Jesus Christ, Lord. Father, glorify Yourself through the words of this song. I pray for anyone in this room lost without you that he or she would come and receive you as his or her Savior today. Amen. God's leading you to join this family of faith. We're going to stand down front and just kind of sing with you, not face you this morning. We want to worship. Just come and tap us on the shoulder. We'd love to pray with you. Let's stand. Sing loud. All right? Sing loud. If you're redeemed. Sing loud, sing out, O Holy Night, and think about this second verse.